in uh, Romans chapter 8, and we are uh, down to the last three verses of Romans chapter 8. Some of our, uh, probably for many of us, some of our favorite verses uh, in the Scripture. I always think that's kind of funny to talk about favorite passages, but I guess we all have passages that we <laughs> like more than others uh, or enjoy perhaps a little more than others. And, and certainly these verses at the end of Romans 8 fit in that category, I'm sure, for, for many people. Uh, last week we, were, uh, we picked it up in verse 35. And we really only talked about verses 35 and 36 and just kind of gave us a little bit of a whetted our appetite a little bit on 37. So today we want to pick it up with verse 37 and read down our study down through verse 39. But let's, uh, let's read the context here again as we've done the last few weeks just to remind ourselves of the context. And uh, and then we'll kind of review what we talked about last week <clears throat> and go on from there. But uh, for the sake of the of the context and kind of thinking about what uh, what Paul, the Paul the point that Paul is making here at the very end of the chapter, I'd like to kind of go back and read. Uh, Further back, so let's pick it up in uh, let's pick it up in verse 16 and just read all the way down through because so oftentimes we focus on these last few verses and they are very meaningful in and of themselves, but they do fit within a context and 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 I think to some degree if we think about the context, then we can even see even more uh, more in the verses than we might otherwise uh, might otherwise see. So if you pick it up in uh, uh, well, let's pick it up in verse 15. He says, For you have not received the spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffered with Him, that we may also be glorified with Him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved. But hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weaknesses, for we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And He who searches the hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because He intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose, for whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, so that He would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom He predestined, He also called. And these whom He called, He also justified. And these whom He justified, He also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? 
If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him over for us all, how will He not also with Him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is He who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor principalities, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Okay? Well, as I said last week, we looked at verses 35 and 36 primarily. And we also, as you recall, we talked uh, uh, quite a bit about Paul and Paul's own experiences uh, from which he writes, uh, as he writes from his own experience about these things here. Uh, so what do you remember? What are some of the things you remember we talked about last week? Okay, okay, great. Yeah, we looked at 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and 2 Corinthians chapter 11, or two passages where Paul goes to some depth explaining many of the things that he suffered through. Uh, the passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 is a little more general, but it's pretty extreme as you read it and you kind of wonder, is Paul exaggerating here? But then when you get to 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and where Paul begins to detail one thing after another, how he'd been beaten many times, times without number, he says, and he'd been beaten with rods and he'd been stoned and he'd been dangerous on rivers and dangerous from his countrymen and uh, dangerous from robbers and dangerous on the sea and how he'd been shipwrecked. And it goes on and on and on and on and how he suffers just the daily pressure of concern for all the churches. And he goes on and on. He lists one thing after another that he suffered from, uh, that he suffered through in the cause of living for Christ. And some of the things were direct, what we would might, might think of as persecution. They were things he encountered directly because of, because of his testimony. But other things were just things that happened in the course of his life as he lived his life and as he tried to serve Christ. Uh, for example, as he's traveling, uh, his dangers from robbers and, and dangers on the sea and being shipwrecked and spending a day and night in the sea, in the sea and, and, and all those things he lists. So, he, so some things that Paul talks about are things that are directly a result of his testimony. He talks about being beaten times without number. So you can just envision those times when Paul's out there preaching and somebody just comes up and hauls off and clobbers him, you know, knocks him out or whatever. I've actually seen that happen. Fortunately, it wasn't to me, but it was to a brother in Christ. And, and uh, he was preaching on campus one day and a guy, some guy came down out of the physics building. He was just a little little bit uh, upset with hearing the gospel preach. He came down, walked across the oval there and just flattened my friend, knocked him completely unconscious. And uh, so that kind of thing is the kind of thing that Paul confronted on numerous occasions. Okay, And the, the significance of that is, is that when Paul writes these things, when he says that, when he gives us that, he gives us two lists in these verses. The first in verse 35, a list of seven things. And then beginning in verse 38, he gives us another list of ten things. 
But in that list of seven, he says, he talks about tribulation and distress and persecution and famine and nakedness and peril and sword. Each one of those things are things we know from the testimony of Scripture that Paul himself had encountered. So when Paul says that we have all these, all these things can happen to us, but they will not separate us from the love of God, that's the voice of experience talking. Paul's saying, listen, I have lived this through and it has not separated me from the love of God. Okay? So that was the point of the, of the going back and thinking about those passages in Corinthians. Anything else from last week you want to bring out that you remember we talked about? Maybe I can prime the pump here a little bit. Uh, in verse 36, you'll notice there, he quotes a passage from the Old Testament about being put to death all day long. What's, what was the point? Why did Paul bring up this passage from Psalms? This quotation from the Psalms about the way the psalmist suffered. Why did he bring that up? Okay. 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 That's one of the things we talked about that 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 he's going through this suffering. He's actually uh, the psalmist as he writes this is is writing from the perspective of a righteous Jew who's experiencing suffering because he's living in a nation in which the nation is being judged for the sin that it's that it's engaged in, and uh, and so this is a hard thing for him to experience because. Because it's really not his fault that these things have happened, yet he's having to suffer through these things. And he says, we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Uh, so that's, that's one point. Why else would Paul bring this particular passage up? Or why would he go back to the Old Testament and bring out a passage from the Old Testament when he's talking about this whole idea of sufferings uh, the, his experience of sufferings and our experience of sufferings. Why is it significant that the psalmist suffered in relationship to what Paul is sharing here in Romans chapter 8? What does that tell us? I'm not asking very good questions this morning. <laughs> I've got to get better at asking these questions. <laughs> Does it not disclose to us that suffering is the normal lot of the child of God? Right? Isn't that what he's trying to tell us? He's saying, listen, we, he says, what can separate us from the love of God? Or who can separate us from the love of God? Can tribulation or distress or or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword. He says, just as it is written. This is, this is just what God has said. This is what He said back in the Old Testament. This is what the psalmist wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He says, this is the normal Christian life. The normal Christian life is a life of suffering. Now, I don't want to paint this dark, bleak picture where we all walk around, you know, wearing black robes and, and uh, you know, and, and moping because we have many things, as, of course, as believers to be excited about and be encouraged about and to rejoice about and that sort of thing. But what Paul is trying to say is when we go through life and we encounter suffering, we shouldn't be surprised. This is not something that should take us by surprise. So, uh, so we... Uh, we get saved here at at, uh, at this first point. We get saved, and then we read all these great things. And we were just reading about them earlier in this chapter as we read the context. We're reading all these things about this revealing of the glory of the sons of God. And I don't know if you noticed, but but glance down through these verses and see how many times he brings up this subject of glory. He says in in verse 17, he says. 
Uh, if children, uh, heirs also, heirs also, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him, that we may also be glorified with Him. Uh, then he says in verse 18, For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed. In verse 21, he says that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And we begin to ask ourselves, what is this glory that he talks about? And we, of course, covered all this as we were going through Romans 8. But we ask ourselves, what is this glory that's going to it's going to be revealed and we discover that it's, it's our being made into the likeness of Christ and partaking in His glory. And remember, we talked about what is glory. When the Bible talks about glory, what's it talking about? And we talked about two aspects of glory. Remember what they were? The word glory carries with it kind of two themes or two ideas in it. Do you remember what those were? Heavy, okay? The idea of something being weighty or heavy. And, and when we think of that, we think of it having great significance or importance. Okay, And so when we speak of the glory of God, we think of it, Him being weighty, Him being great, Him being, Him being significant, infinitely more significant than any of us. Okay, And then the other aspect besides the idea of weightiness or, or heaviness is what? Pardon? Radiance or splendor, that's right. Brilliance, okay? And so when we speak of the glory of God, we think oftentimes of His radiance. We talk about Him dwelling in unapproachable light and that sort of thing. Okay. Well, what He tells us here in Romans 8 is that there's some sense, and we get this also in John chapter 17, there's some sense in which we as believers, at, at some point in the future, we are going to experience in our own lives that glory. And when I say that, I mean we're actually going to get some of God's glory. He's going to, he's going to give to us, as, as Jesus prays in John 17, some of the glory that He gives to his, his Son is going to then be passed on to us so that there's going to come this time when it's revealed that you and I are the children of God and it's going to be a really it's going to be really obvious and conspicuous in a way that it isn't now that we are really significant, really weighty because we are God's children and Christ's brothers, right? Okay? And, and, and the splendor and the brilliance of that is going to be obvious. And so he talks about the revealing of the glory of the sons of God. Okay? So we start here and we're going over here. Now, we're not there yet. When I come home from work in the evening, you know, of course, I'm a paint contractor, so when I come home from work in the evening, I'm, I'm usually, you know, not a sight you particularly want to behold, right? Okay. I'm, well, we won't go into all the gory details, right? Okay. But, but so I come home, and, and sometimes I'll hang around the house and do a few things, you know, before I get cleaned up. And the other day I came home, and... And I had some things to do out in the yard or whatever, mow the lawn or whatever. But so I came home and I did all that. And then I finally went back and took a shower, okay, and got all cleaned up and put on the clean clothes. And I came back out through. My wife was cooking supper in the kitchen, and I came out and and uh, and I said, "Now, now I'm dazzling." And she said to me, "Well, usually when somebody's dazzling, they don't have to tell you that." <laughs> You know, I, I kind of took that as not a compliment. <laughs> but but in, in a sense, that's our dilemma, isn't it, as believers? We really are already the children of God in one sense. He's talked about us receiving the adoption of sons. So we are already the children of God. And yet in this passage, he talks about, about the... The, the, adoption, the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. So he talks about an adoption or an aspect of our adoption which is yet to come and that's when this glory is revealed. I'm not going to have to tell you people that I'm really dazzling. Okay? You're going to see it. And I'm going to, when I look at you, after this has happened, when I look at you, I'm going to go, whoa, that person is a child of God. It's obvious. Okay, it's going to be the revealing. So we start here, we get saved, and this is what we're told we're supposed to look for and anticipate. But 
in the meantime, we have all kinds of things that kind of interject themselves in the way. Right? Stuff, yeah. Things like tribulation and distress and persecution and famine, going hungry, as Paul says he sometimes did. Uh, uh, nakedness, being without covering, okay. Uh, uh, what are the other two? Famine, nakedness, peril, a sword, peril. He talks about all the dangers he's in. Okay, so, he, so all these things kind of interject themselves between point A and point B. Well, I'm disappointed to hear about that because I heard you'd be wealthy. And... <laughs> yeah, well, somebody was trying to sell you a bill of goods. And they also have some land in Florida for you. Uh, but so we have all this stuff. And now here's the crisis that we face. And this is the issue Paul is dealing with. I start out here and I hear the gospel. And I hear God loves me. And I hear he sent his son and he died on the cross for me. And he really loves me. And I go, wow, God loves me. And he died for me. And so I trust him. And I commit my life to him. And I receive Christ and I get saved. And then I move on down the road a few months or a few years and bam, I hit that first biggie. And then a little bit further down the road and bam, I hit another biggie. And pretty soon, I start to wonder, did I really get this straight back here? Does God really love me? And what Paul wants us to see here in, in this passage in Romans, what Paul wants us to see is that when these things happen to us, they are to be expected. We're not supposed to be surprised by them. He says, just as it is written, for thy sake we are being put to death all day long. In other words, Paul's saying this is not just something you Romans are going to experience in your life. It's not just something I've experienced in my life, but this is the testimony of the Old Testament. This is the ongoing experience of all the children of God. Is this sequence of events in our lives. Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, and sword. And then he gets into the second ten list, which we're going to look at today. But these things come in our lives. And the question that we ask ourselves is whatever happened to the love of God? Okay? And that's the question that Paul is addressing here. And what he said here in verse 36, the first thing he said is, folks, expect this. Expect this. It's going to happen. Okay? But then he says in verse 37, but in all these things... We are more than conquerors. Some translations say we overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us. So, what Paul's saying is, okay, now, now remember, we're, we're, listening, we're, we're reading a guy here who's speaking from the, with the voice of experience, right? He's gone through all this job, much more than any of us have ever gone through. I'm pretty sure. You know, all of us have suffered a lot in our lives but I don't think any of us can light a candle to Paul. Okay? But, and maybe you can, and if you can, my apologies to you. Uh, and I'm sorry for you too. <laughs> but, but, you know, I've suffered a lot in my life, but I have not approached anything what Paul has gone through. And Paul is saying, in all of these things that I have gone through, I have not merely conquered, but I have overwhelmingly conquered. But, but he's not just writing it in the first person. He's writing it in the, in the second person. Isn't it? He says, we overwhelm in the heart. So this is not just Paul's experience. This is the experience of all believers. Overwhelmingly conquered. Now, he uses a word there. It's two words in our uh, Bibles, but in the Greek, it's one word. And I just mentioned this as a teaser last week, that that Greek word is a word that means to be victorious or to conquer, but has a little prefix in front of it. It's a, a Greek prefix that's pronounced "uper" or "hooper." Okay, it's pronounced "hooper," from which we get the English prefix "hyper." Right? Okay. So it's the idea of more, above, beyond. Okay. So in one sense, you may be able to read this passage 
uh, where he says in verse 37, but in all these things, we are hyper-victorious. Or we hyper-conquer. Okay? It's the idea of way over, above, and beyond. Now, in, in my experience, when I'm going through these things, boom, 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 one after another in my life, I think I'm doing pretty good if I can just get through them and still love God. Right? You ever feel like that? You, you hit these, these big obstacles in your life, these big crises in your life, whatever it is, and there are some biggies. And all of us have had them. And you hit those and you go, I just got to get through this without just jettisoning my faith. <laughs> I got to get through this and just hold on to God here, okay? And so you, eventually you kind of get through it and you get on the other side and you go, Oh, wow. I'm still walking with God. This is pretty remarkable. You've conquered, right? You've conquered. But that's not what Paul's talking about. I mean, he is talking about that. But he's talking about something far greater than that. He says we hyper-conquer. We don't just get through this thing in one piece. But we actually overwhelmingly triumph over this thing in my life. Now, what does Paul have in mind when he says that? Well, those passages in Corinthians, and we won't go back and look at them again today for the sake of time, but those passages in Corinthians teach us a couple significant things that Paul has in his mind. And one of them is in the passage there in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 where he says, he talks about he's experiencing, he's experiencing death on a daily basis. He keeps having to go through this process of dying. And he says, and, and, and then he says, he says, my experience is death, but your experience is what? Remember that? There at the end of that passage in Second Corinthians 4. Just through all these things, he says, I'm experiencing, I'm encountering death. He says, but you are encountering life. And what Paul is saying is, as I'm going through this, junk in my life, all these things. And you can go back and read that passage in Second Corinthians four. As I'm going through all this stuff and it's really hard on me, but the fruit of it, the result of it, is not only that I get through it in one piece, but there's life born in other people because of what I've gone through. You Corinthians are experiencing the life of Christ because God has let me go through this stuff. So it's not just that when I go through these things, I get through on the other side and I go, oh, I made it. I've been victorious because I've made it through in one piece and I still, you know, I'm still a Christian. <laughs> yeah. It's not that only but it's that by going through those things, as I do so and come out on the other side still loving God, it has the impact in other people of birthing in them the life of Christ. They see God's grace in my life and pow! It does something in their life. So Paul's going, I'm really more than a conqueror. <laughs> I've overwhelmingly conquered because this thing which... You know, maybe the demons or somebody was throwing at me to try and to try and rob me of my faith and try and separate me from the love of God. I'm getting bombarded, and you know, not only have I come through and I still love God on the other side of it, but now other people love God more also because of the things I've gone through. So now they've got more problems. They not only got me to deal with, but they got other people who are now experiencing the life of Christ because of what I have gone through. I have overwhelmingly conquered. So that's one thing he needs. The other thing is, and he brings this out in that passage in Second Corinthians four as well. He says, "I go through all this stuff, but then remember, and we've talked about this verse several times lately." He says, "He says I look at these things." He says. They are, in my perspective, he says, only a momentary light affliction. And you read the list and you go, excuse me, Paul, how can you call 
you're dying, you're going through this process of dying every day, day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year as you try to serve God and love God. And now you say this is just a momentary, light affliction? How does he say that? Well, he doesn't say it by looking at the affliction. He says it by looking at the glory at the end. And what happens, this is foundational to the Christian's understanding of the question of evil and suffering. It's absolutely essential we grasp this. That as I go through these things, it actually explodes the magnitude of the glory. So Paul says, as I suffer through these things in my life, what's actually happening is God is somehow transforming each one of these crises in my life into a far exceeding greater glory that is so much greater than the suffering that when I get over here and I look back at this, it's just going to be a distant memory. Hardly even remember it. It will just be a momentary light affliction. Remember that old Christian hymn, uh, that line in that one old Christian hymn, when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun. Okay? I like that line. When you've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, when you've been there 10,000 years in the image of Christ, when you've been there 10,000 years fellowshipping with the Trinity, what are you going to be thinking about this stuff? That's going to be so far off in the distant past. It'll just be a momentary light affliction. So, Paul says, we overwhelmingly conquer. We don't just get through this stuff. But as we go through it, the life of Christ is birthed in other people as they watch us go through it. And they see how we come out on the other side. Or, and I should say, as I go through this stuff, I am actually building up a greater glory in heaven that I'm going to be able to enjoy for all of eternity. So, he says, I'm an overwhelming, overwhelming conqueror. I am a hyper-conqueror as I go through this. For, he says, I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So, now remember... The love of God for us just jumping to the end of the passage first. The love of God for us is made concrete and real to us in His Son. Right? There's all kinds of good things that God does for everybody every day. Right? He causes the rain to fall on the righteous and the unrighteous alike. Okay? So, everybody, even some of the most wicked people in the world, God gives them good things. And He does good things for them. And so, we can talk about the love of God and we can think, you know, well, God loves us and, he, you know, and, and, and that's cool and nothing can separate us from His love. But that whole idea of the love of God just escalates to another grand level when we start thinking about the death of Christ on the cross, right? It's just, a, it's just, you know, we just we've just jumped up, you know, exponentially. We've just jumped up this whole another notch. 
and in Christ and in what Christ did for you when He hung on the cross. What He did for you when He hung on the cross is an expression of how deeply God loves you and God's love for you is expressed through His Son. Now, the question that Paul is asking is, is it ever possible for the child of God or the believer to somehow be separated from that love? Now, we know already, because we've read the passage, we know his conclusion. He says, I'm persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present, nor things to come, no powers, no height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of Christ. Okay. We know his conclusion. But let's unpack it a little bit, to use a cliche, modern cliche. Okay, Let's think about it a little bit. I don't know about you, but I mean, this is a verse we memorized right when we were little, you know, crumb crutchers in Sunday school class, right? We've known this verse our whole lives. And so we read it real quick and we think, okay, there's all these things and, and nothing can ever separate me from the love of Christ. But, but I have problems with this passage. Now, I read this passage and I like it and uh, you know, it's exciting to me and it's encouraging me, but I have questions that come to mind. I've always tried to encourage you when you read a passage to ask questions. Think about, you know, what are the problems this verse creates for me? You know, so, so I ask questions when I come to this verse. And what's interesting in this, in this first list of seven, they're all circumstances or things that happen to us, right? In the second list of ten, it's a combination of persons and things or circumstances, right? So he talks about angels and principalities and powers. Those are persons, whether they are, whether they're, you know, spiritual persons like angels or whatever, or whether or not they're they're actual human beings. They're persons. And so his argument, Paul, as he gives this list of ten in the, his second list, there are persons. And he says of these persons, whether they are, whether they are, and we'll explore these a little bit, angels, principalities, powers, etc. These persons cannot do anything that would ever separate me from the love of God. But the thing about this passage that bugs me is he also talks about things or circumstances. They're not people. So they're just stuff that happens, right? So he says neither life nor death. Uh, and, and he says... Uh, uh, he, he, says uh, he says things present or things to come or hide or death. So they're things or there's circumstances. Or we could look at the first list, verses 7, where he talks about tribulations or distress or persecutions or famines or nakedness, peril. Okay, these are, these are not people or persons, spiritual beings or human beings who somehow we could imagine get involved in our relationship with God and drive a wedge between us. But these are things that happen to us. And I've always wondered, how is it, what is Paul, what's, what's Paul, Paul got in his mind when he says, these things cannot separate us from the love of Christ. So we think about some of the things that he mentions, persecutions, uh, famine, nakedness, perils, all these dangers, dangers from robbers, dangers from seas, dangers from countrymen, all these things. What does Paul mean when he says, these things cannot separate us from the love of Christ? You know, I, I can understand how a person might do that, but I don't understand how a thing... What does Paul have in his mind? Excuse me? An idol, something that you set up that replaces God. Okay. Okay. Well, that, that kind of touches on it, but, but my point is this. Let's take, let's take a specific thing. Say... Uh, Say an event happens in our life, the death of a child or the death of a spouse or something. Okay, so a really tragic event happens in our life. And the question is, how could that event itself separate me from the love of God? Well, there's one thing I don't think Paul means by this. I, I mean, I, I don't think this is what I don't think Paul is addressing. 
I don't think Paul is suggesting that the bad things that happen in our life cause God to withdraw His love from us. Why do I say that? That's unthinkable, isn't it? We, we know that God, far from withdrawing from people who are suffering, He's drawn to people who suffer, right? God has compassion on those who suffer, right? Now, we don't always. Sometimes when we look at people and, 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 and there's somebody who just gets overwhelmed by suffering, unfortunately, sometimes our reaction, our response is to do what? We pull back, don't we? We, we pull back because... It just overwhelms us. We don't know how to cope with it. We don't know how to help them. And so we pull back, right? Okay. Yeah, yeah, our drill strings, which is in one sense, I think, the same thing. They're kind of pulling back because they can't cope with it. They can't deal with it, right? Well, we know God doesn't do that. And there's nobody believes that God does that. Nobody believes that God looks on suffering people and then goes, oh, I can't handle that, and backs off. So, so, what Paul is trying to address here is a thinking that there's something about things that happen in our life which separate us from the love of God or which we might think might separate us from the love of God. And he's trying to explain to us how that cannot be. But nobody or very few people, I'm sure, struggle with the thought that when God looks at suffering and He looks when we're, fine, when we're really under the pile that there's something in that that causes God to withdraw His love from us. We, we don't believe that. I don't think even unbelievers believe that if they believe in God. What does happen, though, when we've gone through about three or four of these things in a row? What happens when we go through one after another, after another, after another, or when we're in just one, but it is just so absolutely overwhelming. And we are just so perplexed. We're so baffled. We're so confused. We're so bewildered. What do we do? Pardon? Yes. Yes. Sometimes we think God is mean. Or what else? What else do we think about God? We get angry at God. We think He's mean. We get angry with Him. What else? What have we done? He's unjust. You know? What is it? Why has He done this to me? Okay. Yeah. This... Yeah. And in fact, let's look at another psalm. Just flip over real quickly to Psalm 32. Because it really is encouraging to see I'm not the only one that's got this problem. Uh, in Psalm 32, uh, and uh, let me make sure I get this reference right. Uh, yeah, Psalm 32, and in verse... Uh, uh, No, that's not the right reference. Somehow I wrote that down. Because it's verse 22. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm missing it here. Psalm 31. Uh, Psalm 31. Thank you. Uh, yes, that's what I'm looking for. I just had it typed in here wrong in my notes. Thank you. I knew it was somewhere in the 30s here. Okay. The psalmist is going through this, this difficulty. And... Uh, and he says, uh, he says uh, in verse 22, he says, As for me, I said in my alarm, I am cut off before, from before your eyes. Nevertheless, you heard the voice of my supplications when I cried to you. Now look at the first part of that verse. He says, in my alarm. He's going through this situation. He's been in this besieged city. And he says, in my alarm, I said I am cut off from before your eyes. This is, a, this, is, this is a normal experience for us as believers. We go through these circumstances. Boom, 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 boom. We get overwhelmed. They seem so incredibly painful. They go on for weeks or months or years without any relief. And it doesn't change. We know it doesn't change 
that circumstance itself doesn't change God's attitude towards us. But it does tend to change our attitude towards God, doesn't it? And we start asking these things that we just mentioned, right? We start thinking, God's being mean to me. Now, maybe you're super spiritual and you've never had that thought, but I can tell you I've had that thought. I've gotten to the point where I've told God just to bug off. Leave me alone. I'm not proud of it, but I picked up my Bible one time and threw it the entire length of my house. I said, God, if you want to use somebody, go find somebody else because I can't take this training program. And we begin to think all of these things about God that aren't true. Some of them even blasphemous. Right? Let's just be honest with ourselves. Right? We think these thoughts that just are reprehensible thoughts about God. So when we go through these suffering events in our life, we know that there's nothing inherent in the event that would separate God's love from us. But we do know how desperately we fail in those situations, right? We know how often we question God or accuse God or withdraw from God ourselves, right? We do those things, right? Now, here's the powerful message of Romans 8 that does not separate you from the love of God. It does not separate you from the love of God. What Paul is telling us here as we go through all of these things, we are going to fail because we're human. We're sons of Adam. We're going to fail. And there are times when we're going to think things about God that we shouldn't be thinking. And we're going to say things to God we shouldn't be saying. Right? But even those things don't change God's love for you if you're a child of God. See, these are the reasons, folks, why I believe in the security of the believer. Because I believe that God so loved me that He gave His own Son to die on a cross for me and He has already given the absolute max that He could give. How will He not also with Him freely give me all things? If, if my sin crucified His Son on the cross and He gladly, willingly gave His Son to pay for my sins, how could I imagine there's some sin I could commit that could not be covered by that blood? So Paul's saying, folks, we're going to go through this stuff. This is the normal lot of the believer. We're going to experience famine and persecution and nakedness and peril and sword and tribulation and distress. We're going to suffer betrayal. We're going to suffer abandonment. We're going to suffer uh, all kinds of things we're going to suffer. Some of them as a direct result of our testimony and some of them just as part of life, as he makes clear in his list of ten. But even when I'm going through those things and I fail, I have this confidence that it does not separate me from the love of Christ. And that when I get on the other side of it, I'm going to be like Christ. I'm going to be made in the image of His Son. And when you look at me, you're going to go, Whoa! He didn't do so hot on earth. But that guy's a pretty heavy dude now. And I'm going to think the same thing about you. So then he goes through his list and he says, Neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor death, nor any other created thing. Well, 
I, there again, like the previous list, as I said about the previous list last week, I don't think he's, I don't think he's trying to make very distinct categories here. So don't try and, as you go through the list, don't try and make real distinct categories and divisions between these lists of ten things. But, but Paul, you'll notice that in his list of ten, he gives us four sets of two, right? Life, death, angels, principalities, things present, things to come, height, death. Okay, so he gives us four sets of two. He gives us one thing that kind of stands by itself, powers, and then he gives us his kind of grand thing at the end, his catch-all, just in case he missed anything, right? Okay. So first he starts out with life and death, and he's just saying, folks, there is nothing in the course of life that can separate you from the love of God that He has expressed to you in the death of His Son. Nothing. Nothing that you will experience in the course of your life. So, maybe you're only here at point two. When I was in my, when I was in my 20s, and I was uh, fellowshipping with a navigator, in navigator ministry on Okinawa, and uh, and I remember guys talking about older guys would come through. We had these older nav guys come in and they'd speak and whatever, and and they kept telling me that life got harder, not easier. <laughs> and when I was in my 20s, I didn't want to hear that because <laughs> I thought life was pretty tough at 20. <laughs> now as I look back on it, I'm thinking, man, what a breeze, you know. But at the time, I thought it was pretty tough. And so when some old codger in his 50s or 60s comes along, notice how I referred to myself just now, uh, when some old codger comes along and he says, you know, it doesn't get any easier, it just gets harder, I don't want to hear that. I don't want to hear that. The problem was, not, the problem wasn't in them telling me that. I needed to hear that, and I'm glad they told me. But I wish they'd also told me that neither life nor death would separate me from the love of God. Life may get harder, but life is never going to throw anything at you that will separate you from God's love. Not even death. I can think of all kinds of ways I don't want to die. <laughs> You know, you know how I want to die? Same way you want to die. Lying in bed asleep, right? That's how we all want to die, you know. I, I found out as I've grown a little older in life, I, I, have, a, I have a little bit of claustrophobia. <clears throat> and, you know, and it's not, it's not, you know, after, you know, I told you my story about the cave thing last week or whatever, you know, so, uh, you know, I, I probably brought this on myself. But, but I have a little bit. So, you know, drowning scares me to death. Yeah, I mean, I just, you know, anything but drowning, you know. Uh, well, not anything, you know. There are some other things, I, you know. I wouldn't want to fall off the Empire State Building, you know. It's a lot of time to think about it before you hit ground zero. You know? So, you know, there are several ways I don't want to die. I don't know how I'm going to die. But I know one thing. However I die, it's going to separate me from the world, of course. Nor angels, nor principalities. Well, it's not real explicitly clear what Paul has in mind here, but because of the way he's using contrast here, I think he's using angels in the sense of just spiritual beings. Uh, possibly good angels, but we can't imagine any reason why a good angel would want to separate us from the love of God anyway, right? So maybe possibly what Paul has in mind is by this time in, in, this time in history, about the mid-60s A.D., we're beginning to get the first inklings of the development around that realm of the Mediterranean of Gnosticism, which became in the next century a major Christian heresy. Okay. But one of the elements of Gnosticism was this idea that there are all these kind of between God and us, there are all these intermediary spiritual beings. And you've got to kind of figure out how to run the gauntlet. Okay? And that's and and the secret of Gnosticism, which means knowing and the Gnostics were the knowing ones, they had the secret knowledge of how to negotiate all these intermediary spiritual beings. So maybe that's what Paul had in mind. Maybe he was beginning by now to encounter the first uh, elements of Gnosticism and there's this idea of these spiritual beings out there that we've got to kind of... But you don't have to worry about them because they can't separate you from the love of God. 
or principalities. Now, that's a word we're familiar with because he uses it in Ephesians chapter 6. Probably what he has in mind here is the idea of the spiritual, demonic spiritual beings that are really running the earth we live, running the world we live in, right? Because we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. Ephesians chapter 6. So the idea is, there's nothing, you know, a lot of Christians, unfortunately, get all hung up on this whole thing about demons. And that, you know, they're all worried about demon possession. And, you know, do I have a, you know, do I have an eyesight demon that makes it so I need glasses? And do I have, you know, a toothache demon? Or do I have a toothache? And, you know, and I don't mean to be facetious here. They actually do teach these things, okay? The demons cause all this stuff, okay? Well, maybe they do. Of course, they don't. I don't believe they do. But even if they did, they couldn't separate me from the love of Christ because Paul just told me that angels and principalities cannot separate me from the love of God. Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present. Now, I don't know what you're going through today. Some of you right now, life's pretty good. But some of you are going through hell on earth right now. There's nothing you're going through right now that is going to keep you from this. Because Christ bought this for you with His blood. So whatever you're going through right now, things present, they will not separate you from the love of God. Or things to come. So here again, let's go got back to this. I, I got off of this. We get to this point and we you know and then we start thinking, you know, there's more suffering coming down the road. You know, when's the next shoe gonna fall type of thing, you know? Don't worry. I mean it'll be hard. It'll be excruciating. But it won't separate you from the love of Christ. It won't keep you from this. In fact, not only will it not keep you from this. But according to what Paul says in Corinthians, it's going to make this bigger and better. I, I, I don't want to make a status out of all you people, but the more of this stuff you go through, the better this gets. Neither things present nor things to come. And then he says powers. Well, he's already mentioned angels and principalities. So some commentators think here he, he, he's thinking about spiritual powers here but I don't think he's talking here about spiritual powers I think he's just talking about earthly powers he's writing to the Christians in Rome right as they walk through the streets of Rome every day what do they encounter people of power right they you know there's Caesar's palace and there's Caesar and there's all these Roman senators and all these influential powerful people. And if you're just a peon like you and me, it can be a little intimidating, can it? Especially when you know that the government institution itself is hostile to your faith, is opposed to your faith, wants to stamp out your faith. When you know the government wants to do that, it could be a little intimidating. And Paul says, don't worry. The powers cannot separate you from the love of Christ. We need to remember that, folks. We need to remember that. You know, I, I, I've only lived for about 65 years, okay? But I've studied a lot of American history. And from my perspective at this stage in American history... I don't think there's been a time when our government has been as overtly opposed, I mean overtly opposed, to the evangelical faith. Now, we've had, we've had people, we've had presidents who were contrary, who were against the evangelical faith. Thomas Jefferson was opposed to the evangelical faith. And so we had, we've had presidents. But, but they were willing to allow believers to practice their faith. They, were, they, they allowed believers to because they saw the contribution that believers could make. But we have now, it seems to me, from my perspective, we have now a government which is becoming increasingly overtly hostile to the evangelical faith. Now, that's not going to make life pleasant for us. 
but it's not going to separate us from the love of Christ. Right? It's not going to separate us from the love of Christ. Nor height, nor depth. What's, what's he talking about? Well, uh, again, you know, I don't think there's hard and fast categories here that he's talking about, but, you know, the height, you know, maybe anything in heaven, anything in the heavens, any of the big, powerful, spiritual things up there, wherever up there is, or anything down in the very depths. Maybe even he's thinking of hell itself. But there's nothing in heaven or hell that could ever separate us from the love of Christ. In fact, he says, there is not any created thing that can separate us from the love of Christ. If you eliminate all created things, what do you got left? God. <laughs> That's all that's left, right? Everything besides God is created. Right? Everything besides God is created. So God says that everything besides me, none of that can separate you from my love. Well, a couple quick questions to think about. One is, I've been reading this verse since I was knee-high to a grasshopper. And it's oftentimes pointed to as a tremendous passage for the communicating the idea of eternal security or the security of the believer. But do you have any problems with that? Is there something about this passage that makes you go, oh, wait a minute. Is that what he's really saying? Well, you can couple of views. I mean, some people take this, I can separate myself. Okay. Or the other view is, well, he may love me, but I, I can still separate myself. I mean, I can still be lost and he'll still love me, but I'll, I'll be lost. Yeah. Right, yeah. Which, of course... To answer the second one, what Paul has been talking about this whole time is the glory. So, of course, that answers the second. That's the answer to the second objection. The first objection, though, is, well, I can separate myself. And so then I go back and see, is, did Paul list me in this list? And, he's, and I'm not directly there, am I? He doesn't say, he doesn't go through all this list and say, or oh, you yourself can separate you. He doesn't say that. So I'm not in the list. And so some people say, well, the reason you're on the list is you can't separate yourself from the love of God. There are a couple main evidences that that's not true. One is what we've just been talking about here this morning is that Paul's point is not what all this suffering does to God, but what it does to me. As I go through all this junk and I fall and I sin and I think things about God that I shouldn't be thinking even that does not separate me from the love of Christ. That's the first point. The second point is, he's already established in the verses just before this that no one can bring a charge against God's elect because God is the one who justifies. And no one can act as my judge and condemn me because my judge is Jesus and he died for me on the cross. In other words, my sin's already covered. My sin. So there's no question about it. You can play games with this passage. You can say, well, he didn't, you know, you can play semantics with the passage. You can say, well, he didn't mention me specifically, so maybe I can. You can try that. But he's already shut the door on that. He slammed the door on that before he ever started the passage when he said emphatically, no one can bring a charge against God's elect because God has justified them. Well, so now we know, theoretically, that the child of God is secure. And that we're going to go through all kinds of junk in life and it's going to bewilder us and perplex us and frustrate us and hurt us and it's going to be hard. It's going to be unbelievably hard at times. But it's not going to separate us from God's love. Or is it? We've got a major theological problem. Israel. Well, Paul, if all of this is true, that the child of God whom you've loved and called and all this sort of thing is secure, 
then how do you explain the problem of Israel? It looks to me like Israel was called and then rejected. That's why Romans chapter 9 follows Romans chapter 8. Because in the mind of those Jews in Rome, if they get to the end of chapter 8 and they're going, there, that's pretty good, Paul, but what about, what about the nation of Israel? And so Paul's going to take three chapters and he's going to show us that the principle of God's enduring love applies also to the nation of Israel. Okay? So next week, we pick up the really heavy stuff in Romans 9, 10, 11. Sorry, in Romans 9.